Well, hello everyone. Today is May 23rd, 2021, and this is your episode 288 of the At Percussion Podcast. Uh, with me today, as always, are Casey Cangelosi. Hey, how's it going, Ben? Doing well. How are you, Casey? Good. Potty training. Yeah. Are you in are you in full summer mode at this point, Casey? Yeah. 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 Excellent. You don't, there's no such thing as potty training not in the summer, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's never been done, I don't think. And Carly Vigna is also with us. Hey, Ben. No potty training here. I'm Excellent. happy to report. <laughs> and Carly, I think that you had a gig, didn't you? I did. What a remarkable thing to report on, right? Full orchestra. Yeah, what, yeah it, was, you play? it was fun. We played um, the Ravel Piano Concerto in G major and Mother Goose Suite, which was pretty awesome. I had never played either of those pieces, so it was nice and and i was thinking you know i've played like a couple of gigs this year it's been like here there this was the first i keep thinking what's the first this is the first full orchestra gig with live audience inside a concert hall and it wasn't that many people um you know the house was maybe like 10 percent full um but yeah it was it was nice it was with palm beach symphony that's awesome yeah the the uh Ravel Piano Concerti are pieces that we don't, I don't think we really study in music history or anything, but I've heard the left-hand concerto and I guess one of the regular concertos and just mind-blowingly good, really, really interesting stuff. So that's awesome. My student won the concerto competition here with the Ravel left-hand concerto on marimba. Yeah, that's crazy. Freaky. Yeah. Freaky, that's awesome. Freaky, freaky. And Carly, <laughs> I played, I played Mother Goose Suite. I played all the percussion parts because we did one of those Zoom collages. Oh. So, so I played, I played everything and, and spliced it all together. Yeah, it's really Casey, nice. can you tell me, please, that your student didn't just play with his left hand. He used both hands on marimba. I know, right? So it doesn't Is that, count. okay, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Makes me feel a little bit better about myself. It doesn't count uh, both hands. Well, this episode is going to be released on June 10th, 2021. So if you're listening to this on release date, a few uh, items in history that happened today. In 1840, Franz Liszt gave the first ever concert called a recital. Uh, in 1865, Carl Nielsen was born. And of course, we had the Nielsen clarinet concerto with that famous snare drum excerpt. And the big news item I wanted to talk about today is in 1865, uh, Wagner's opera Tristan und Isolde premieres, uh, and if you're familiar with music history, you know that's a very significant work in the Western music history canon. Uh, and a little bit of research about it, I found interestingly that uh, one place that was a potential location for the premiere was uh, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, uh, and it was going to be in Italian. Um, there was actually some sort of materials sent back and forth, it seemed, but that eventually fell through and it was ultimately premiered in Munich. Uh, it's a landmark piece in the development of Western music, particularly harmony. And so if you look at the Romantic period, one of the biggest developments that happened throughout the Romantic period was that dissonance was prolonged and harmonies went unresolved for longer periods of time. Uh, and so in this work, he sets up this famous chord at the beginning that we now call the Tristan chord. And this is what it sounds like. And 
And that uh, dissonance that's set up there is actually unresolved until the very end of the final act of the opera. And so this uh, prolonging of dissonance idea that happened in the Romantic period would be the baton would be eventually passed to Schoenberg. And if you listen to Schoenberg's early works, they sound like very, very advanced late Romantic works. And then ultimately, Schoenberg had the realization that when you prolong dissonance for that long, the ending point actually loses significance to the beginning point and he said that basically harmony was no longer relevant and that's where we got the 12 tone technique and the the second viennese school came from so that's our today in music history casey you're nodding like you you had something no i was just doing that thing when you nod like yeah i know all that oh. you know like yeah <laughs> just... i remember i I remember <laughs> giving the like, illusion of intelligence. Oh yeah, it's not even yeah. I you know Tim is yeah doing the more accurate thing for me <laughs> there, but um, yeah, it's uh nope. It's just like automatic when someone's saying stuff that I, I don't remember from. Yeah, if someone school. says Wagner, you just oh, yeah. like oh <laughs> yeah yeah. But you're right. Well, that was like this. They talk about the Tristan chord because it's like the start of the whole progress into atonality and all of that, and it just started I will with say, crunchy chords. Of Speaking of trying to sound smart, I've never actually been entirely confident in my pronunciation of the, the opera's full name. I always just say Tristan. And I sent to our group chat today, does anyone know how to correctly pronounce this? And no one replied. So I don't think <laughs> anyone anyone here I knows. Just, I just I just <laughs> nodded. I did the nod thing. I saw your question. I went, uh-huh, uh-huh. I, I saw it and I was like, I have to resort to Ksenia on this one. Our yeah, this is why we need Ksenia. Ksenia sadly out today Ksenia's got a big recording project going on right now but uh without any further ado I would like to get to our guest today our guest today is Tim Jennis Tim is the principal timpanist of the Boston Symphony Orchestra and he also teaches at Boston University as a self-described pocket snob Tim has developed a versatile line of timpani mallets his students have won positions with the Hong Kong Philharmonic Boston Symphony Orchestra the Detroit Symphony Orchestra and several others so welcome to the podcast Tim Jennis Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be here with you guys. And I'm not potty training anyone. Anymore. Okay, good, good. <laughs> oh, there you go. Now you can't edit that out, Ben. <laughs> or else it'll be irrelevant to that. Ah, uh, yes. Excellent. <laughs> that must be nice. Well, Tim, we had uh, several months ago, uh, at this point, we had Neil Grover on the podcast. And I'd like to actually start with this sort of topic. Um, Someone asked Neil Grover, they said, it seems like many of the Boston Symphony percussionists, uh, and Neil is a, a frequent sub with Boston Symphony, uh, have had some sort of innovation in creating products and marketing them, whether it's Vic Firth or Neil Grover or uh, Tom Gager, and obviously Tim Jennis also has his timpani sticks. So Tim, uh, could you tell us what's, what's going on in Boston that, that makes people make their own products? It seems to be this sort of... Uh thing that happens with everyone who's in Boston that they want to get involved with the product making biz and uh, I, I did it for the same reason that I think you know Neil and Vic and uh, you know Frank and Tom all did that we just wanted something that wasn't available at the time so I mean there's obviously thousands of sticks Symphony sticks out there, um, or at least hundreds. But there was something about most of them that didn't quite fit what I was doing. And so I, I wanted to get something that had 
better balance. That was my main issue with how the timpani stick is balanced and how it throws off the head. And so I wanted to try to create something that was that had uh, something where I could alter the balance and still have a organic type stick, not a uh, like a carbon fiber thing. Because I, I I tried all the carbon fiber stuff and I, I I never could make it work. It just didn't feel natural to me. It didn't sound natural to me actually either, for some reason. And so uh, you know I figured out a way to sort of uh, fill parts of the bamboo with a weight enhancement and I can put that weight enhancement in different parts of the stick depending upon how thick the bamboo was so it's it took a it took a long time to sort of figure that part out um, but I it took like two or three years actually um, but sometimes I inject air into it to create a little space and sometimes I inject um, sort of this uh, weighted powder like lead powder within a, a, a hardening formula that is injected into the sick and hardens and then it's stable um, so um i and i couldn't find anything out there that was like that so i just started messing with it on my own and i think you know vic did the same thing when he started his stick business i think most most of the businesses are ones that are very uh in tune with actually being a business and <laughs> that, you know, you make a lot of money and uh, mine doesn't do that really because <laughs> I do all the sticks myself and I'm not in it for, you know, to make, you know, a huge profitable big business. I'm in it just to have a really good product and it kind of took off a little bit because, you know, word gets around, but, you know, I don't advertise these things. I just, it's all word of mouth, but um, I'm at the point now where I can't really keep up with the orders. Um, uh, so it's because it's just me and then I've, I've employed, you know, some students here and there to do selling and my children actually do some of it as well because um, they want jobs. I was going to so, say now that they're potty trained. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they, they do some of that as well. And um, it's kind of a fun little side thing that I do, but it's, it's uh, you know, I'm proud of the sticks. They're, you know, there's nothing like them really. Um, and it's, it's what I, I use them all the time. And, you know, I don't play any other kind of stick at this point because I just kept making sticks that would fit what I needed. And so at this point, there's about 20 different models of, of Tiffany sticks out there. Um, so, you know, it's, it's uh, I, I don't know if it's contagious within Boston or not, but it's certainly something that I think, you know, a lot of people in Boston do. I think Tom Jager did it for the same reasons. And, so did Dick and Neil certainly um, is in there as well. Do you think it's because percussion is still just kind of young? You know, I mean, we still like, I feel even just on this podcast, gosh, we've talked about, you know, Ben, the famous uh, bar talk. Like, so how do you do the symbols? Do you use the hi-hat rig or do you pass the symbols to the 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 percussionist? What, what do you do? You know, it's like, there's all these different tricks and how-tos and, um, I, I guess, I don't know, do you think eventually we'll figure all of our tricks out and we'll, our, our rep will be really, I guess, uh, stable and we'll kind of, we'll be done making stuff eventually? Well, I don't know. I think there's always room for something new. Just when you think everything's been done, then somebody comes out with something else that you haven't seen before. And I remember when, you know, I went to school with Dave Herbert and um, he kind of was one of the first people to start using um, 
carbon fiber. And, you know, he was using golf club shafts, basically. And, you know, I, I don't think before when we were in school, I don't think there was anything like that um, at this point. It's kind of taken off. You know, there's a whole bunch of companies that are, are making that sort of thing. So, and, you know, 20 years, years down the line, there's going to be other things that, you know, that aren't there. The, you, know, you might see like um, self-tuning timpani. Um, my wife threw that. My wife's in the orchestra actually, and she threw that at me when we were having dinner. And she said, "What if you had something that you know, um, as some sort of electronic apparatus that could actually hear the pitch of the orchestra, take in whatever a that it's hearing, and be able to tune the timpani from the pressure of the head." And I want that. it's like, wow, that's really complicated, <laughs> but it could be, it could, but you never know. Like, you know, in, in 20 years, it could be something where it's, you know, auto-tune, um, which is, you know, kind of a sellout, but, you know, there, there's, there's room for, for plenty of innovation, I think. Sure. Yeah, I think to go along with that, there's that, that quote from the Steve Schick book where he talks about like B.B. King didn't play guitar. B.B. King played Lucille, like that was his guitar's name. That's his specific instrument. And he's, Steve Schick goes on, of course, Steve Schick is brilliant, but to talk about, you know, percussionists by our very nature, we don't, we don't play the snare drum, we play a snare drum. We play whatever snare drum is there or timpani or whatever, any other instrument. So I think the sort of theoretical existence of our instrument is, I don't think we'll ever reach that point of where it's kind of boring and we all use the same fingering system and. I don't, I don't think we'll ever get there. And I kind of like that. Although it would be nice if marimba bars weren't all different widths. But you know what I mean? Like the bar talk, like eventually, like we'll have this conversation and other percussionists will have this conversation enough times that it'll be like, this is really the best way to handle that. Yeah. Song. But I mean, look at the, you know I mean? the Carter March is an old piece in our repertoire and everyone does the, the mutes a different way. Yeah. But Tim, I, Tim, I had a question. I wanted to pitch a product idea. What do you think about a vibraphone that it was battery powered so it would charge and then you could unplug it and bring it on stage and it would have a battery that would turn the motor so you wouldn't have to have like an extension cord well i think you know with anything electronic you're you're uh looking for trouble <laughs> so you know there's got to be that time when the battery runs out too early on you or you know but it's like a laptop battery like so you can you can use it plugged in too royalty free if, if you want to produce that product Are you, is this to... something that you're thinking about making is that why we're I've, uh... no I've, started, <laughs> I've just like introduced this idea on the podcast so many times hoping someone would pick it up but but so far <laughs> no one's uh, no shot me down surprising. no atoms or yamaha or anything yeah <laughs> really disappointed with that actually but carly i think you had something most people say that sounds like an interesting idea at least and... we'll keep talking about it ben yeah. yeah, did I, I say that? Did I say anyone that's listening? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, don't think, I don't think Tim said that, A. But. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think, you know, the the whole, you know, ideology of, of, of being a percussionist is always, it, it, the nature of our instruments and how we play uh, and how we create music, it's always, you're always looking for some, some, type of way to make it your own i think and so i think with that comes you know just sort of the musical interpretation and then also the actual equipment interpretation like you know like if you if you take um the cadenza in shostakovich one the timpani cadenza in the fourth movement it's just it's just timpani 
And, um, you know, when I played it the first couple of times, you know, I just sort of read it like any other student does and, and, you know, played it loud, played it a little bit softer and played it, you know, very soft. Um, but then, you know, you'll get an idea from someone or you get an inspiration that you've seen or heard or a conductor will say something. And Kurt Mazur said to me that, you know, he wanted it to be much more violent and then much more um, like you're almost dying at the end of it. And, you know, at that point, I, I you know, if I'm going to play it that soft, I can't play it with the same mouth that I started with. So I'm switching mallets that I never even, I never even thought of. There was something that I just did on the fly and played it with one hand uh, the last time, you know, when you play it pianissimo and played it much slower and, you know, did all these little differences or nuances that I hadn't really thought of before. So, you know, you're constantly innovating, I think, you know, in, in this business. Um, either musically or, or product-wise to create something individual, you know? Yeah, well, speaking of innovating and, you know, developing your own sound, Tim, I was a student in Boston at Boston Conservatory from 2009 to 2011, and I went to just about as many BSO concerts as I could, and I am grateful to have heard you play as many times as I did, and so thank you. It was wonderful to meet you. Um, but I wonder if if you would tell us a little bit about when maybe in the early years that you were in Boston, how did you kind of develop your sound within the orchestra and your sound within Symphony Hall? And, you know, I'm sure that influenced the development of mallets, too, at that time. Yeah, yeah. You know, I started um, as as the assistant timpanist uh, under Vic uh, first, and that was in 1993 um, and did that for about 10 years. And so, you know, I had kind of my own ideas about how to play timpani, but, you know, looking back on it now, I really had no clue <laughs> really how to play timpani when I first got into the orchestra. Um, you know, I didn't even like have a concept about, you know, controlling roll speed and all this other, you know, stuff that I sort of do naturally now. So, you know, I really think, you know, when you're, when you're taking an audition or when you're when you win a job hopefully what the committee is seeing in you is sort of the potential of what you could become which is very hard to do i mean as someone who has sat on many committees really hard to know if someone's going to really develop or you know fall off and i guess that's what probation is for but um but as far as my sound goes um i, I really you know i've i obviously got influenced by Vic uh, a bit, you know, having spent 10 years watching him. And, you know, I, I really did watch him like a hawk and I had no idea what he was about, to be honest. I knew he was really famous and he made sticks and all this stuff, but, you know, and I'd heard him a couple times as a student and I thought, yeah, he's a good temperament, I guess, you know. Um, but then when, you, when I sat behind him, it really, it was a whole new world as far, because he used these huge big puff balls for sticks and usually he, he maybe had two pairs, maybe, maybe three pairs uh, for a concert. I never saw him use more than two or three pairs. And he would get all these colors and he would get all these like nuances and he'd get all these, and he was playing on plastic too, it wasn't even calf. And he made them sound like calf, to be honest. There was just this really big warmth in his sound. And I really liked that. And you know, he was a genius at placement and just all the stuff that I was taking in and I was trying to grab all of it. Um, 
And then once he left and I stepped over and replaced him, um, that's when I started really fussing around with lots of different things. I mean, I we Cap was not allowed in Symphony Hall when he was here. He not he didn't want anything to do with it. And so I had no experience on Cap because it wasn't at you know when I was in school there was no Cap in any of the schools. You know, Juilliard didn't have any Cap drums. Um, it just wasn't something that we did as Americans. And then we slowly, you know. Uh, got into it, I think, you know, just from sort of, it seems like my generation started doing it because Dave started doing it. And then as soon as I got this job, I wanted to look at it. So I immediately, I took, you know, the summer off, went to Europe, studied with Marinus Kompst for a while. I spent a month with him. And I spent a month with uh, Wieland uh, Welzel from Berlin and just, I was like, I want to learn from these guys. I want to just see what they have to offer. And they just threw tons of stuff at me. I learned how to, you know, I visited hard key drums uh, and watched him make a set of drums for me and I helped him make them. So I wanted to learn everything about timpani. Um, and then once I started futzing with it and being, you know, ultraly, you know, ultra confused about, you know, what to do because I had so much information at that point, I just had to do trial and error. So I started using calf on ringers. Um, I started messing with mallets, like these mallets are just too thuddy on calf. Um, so I needed lighter mallets. And so I just, you know, I used everything. I, I usually would buy mallets and then mess them up. I would like change them and, you know, uh, rewrap them in certain ways and, and do all this stuff. And I found that, you know, using a ball mallet was best. I found the cartwheel mallets were too, uh, didn't have enough tonal color for me, didn't have enough bottom or something in the sound. It was something that, so I, I would mess around with, you know, mainly ball sticks. And that's when I just kind of started making my own. I started grabbing some uh, mallets from uh, Japan, from uh, Kato, who's a sort of a famous uh, bamboo symphony mallet maker, and got some ideas from him. And then I, you know, started with this weight thing. So it's, it's, uh, it was just a kind of a process over, you know, being in the hall, playing at Tanglewood, experimenting with heads. Um, I think the only way to really get to know how to do that and figure it out is just a lot of time, a lot of experimentation. I could just remember being in the hall, like recording myself from different angles, having our recording engineers record me, um, listening to, you know, my drums played by my assistant. Like, I, I would tell us, like, hey, you mind using these sticks for this part? And let me see how it sounds. And, you know, so a lot of sort of grunt work almost um, that takes a lot of time. And, you know, ultimately, I think that's the way you, any, any player has to do it. They have to just spend time um, researching and fiddling with it and keep tweaking. And, you know, I'm never going to be done tweaking things. I'm always, I mean, I'm still, you know, even the mouse that I have for production that I sell, there's several generations of them always coming out. But it's like, oh, I, I, this is going to be better. So I'm going to change this one little thing and it actually makes the weight balance better or the, something about it. So uh, I think if you get to the point where you're like, I don't need to figure anything else out, I've got it all, then I think that's the time to retire. <laughs>
Like I think as a performer, as a musician, as an educator, you always have to be, you have to have that curiosity factor, um, always sort of going through your head and you know, wanting to learn, never being that kind of person that knows it all. Um, I, I'm, I try to watch as much as I can and listen to, you know, we're in the age now where we can access anything um, on, on the internet. And so, you know, it's, it's great where you can just grab all this information and, and, oh, I didn't know who did that or whatever it is. So, uh, so it, it, I really just sort of developed everything through curiosity and, and experimentation. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I don't know if I have a, a unique sound to me, but it feels like, you know, it's something that I do that I don't see other people doing just because this works for me. And, you know, if it works for somebody else, great. You know, so, so uh, I think that's how most, you know, Cloyd Duff didn't really uh, have someone say, hey, you should do it this way. I'm sure he got an idea from a conductor from Zell or something and then tried something and then made it his own. You know, and Goodman and all those guys, I'm sure they all did the same thing. Did, did Vic ever say why CAF was just not allowed? I mean, to, to some of our young listeners who probably haven't messed with CAF, bass drum heads, timpani heads, it can be a very big ordeal. And if you don't yeah, know what you're I was doing, say, your heads I, can... <laughs> I actually, I saw, I saw a video of uh, Dave Herbert, and it's like, he's like the first one to the orchestra hall every and has to tune up the drums and get everything in good shape in order just to be able to play them. So, yeah. Yeah, and there's, you know, it's funny. Um, I, well, I mean, to answer Casey's question, uh, I know exactly why Vic didn't want to use calf because it's a pain in the butt. Because um, yeah. <laughs> you got to be there early. He liked to show up like, you know, well, actually, he showed up like 20 minutes, half hour before. He would noodle around and on the drums, but he didn't want to have to mess with the heads. In the time that I was there, he never changed his heads. Um, and I mean, they were plastic heads. To be honest, you don't really need to change them if, if you take care of them. And he had those old heads from the 70s, which were, if you can get your, if you want plastic heads, if you can get your hands on the ones from the 70s, those were the heads to, to get, the Remo heads. Um, they're incredible. I have a set on my, I have a set of ringers actually here at the house um, that have those heads on them. And uh, I, ha I have not changed them at all. And there's not a single dent in them. I mean, they look new, basically. Um, so he, he just, you know, he spent years at Tanglewood before plastic was invented, having to deal with calf out there. And I tried calf at Tanglewood and I will never do it again. Um, and you can't do it. It's impossible. It, the humidity is just way too high and it's too unpredictable. So, um, he did it for convenience sake and he made it work. He made plastic work. So, yep. Yep. Cool. <laughs> All, all the talk about futzing around with mallets, reminds, it's, it just seems like double reed players. I mean, Carly's married to a bassoonist. I'm sure there's wood shavings everywhere. I mean, it's just a constant, it's it's a craft that goes along with the art of performing. And it's it's incredible to me, the you know, great tempanists that, that can do that, like yourself. Um, but Tim, I wanted to ask also uh, for our, our, maybe some of our younger listeners don't even know that Vic Firth was actually a person before it was a brand. Uh, and Vic Firth was, like you said, the, the former principal timonist of Boston Symphony. He passed away uh, in 2015. Um, and I've heard a lot of interesting stories about Vic Firth being a, kind of a prankster. Um, and can you tell us about Vic Firth, the person, a little bit? 
Yeah, I don't know if he was a prankster, but he was um, he was uh, kind of a cut up, and, and you know, he always had a funny way of of describing things and a funny way of making uh, the situation hilarious. Um, just through just a, like a little comment or like you know, at one point he started calling me Ichabod because I was so skinny because I wasn't I wasn't eating when I was <laughs> like you know practicing timpani and stuff. He's like, yeah, you look like Ichabod. So. I don't know. Um, and so, but as a professional and as, as, you know, sort of, you know, the guy that, you know, I was, you know, I was assisting him, you could not ask for a better colleague. Um, I mean, he was so professional and so supportive and he never, I don't think once ever said, you know, you should really try doing it this way. Or he never told me how to play, um, which he could have because I didn't know anything, to be honest, and he, he did, but he, he, he knew that, you know, I'm just going to trust this guy, and let him do his thing, and, you know, if it, hopefully he'll figure out how to make this whole thing work, and he did, and, um, you know, I never had to say, listen, how, how are we going to play these you know, like oftentimes in Berlioz or something, you have to play something exactly together with two sets of timpani. Um, and he never explained how he's going to do it because he didn't need to because the way he played, it was just so obvious where we were going to put things. I, I didn't even have to look at him. I could just see in the corner of my eye just this prep of how he prepped notes. And because um, I've seen a lot of double timpani players play and I'm like, bum, bum, bum. like oh, they're not really together. Um, and you have to be, and you have to figure out, and it's the assistant's job to figure out how to do that. But it was super easy for me um, because it was just so obvious of where to put it. And to be honest, he made it easier for, for the whole orchestra. And I noticed that. Um, I even had heard the concert master come up to him and say, hey, can you lower your stand? Because I'd like to just sort of out the corner of my eye see your stroke um, a little bit. And I was like, wow. So, you know, it is true that the Tiffinus is kind of the leader of the orchestra in certain situations. Um, so I picked up on that very quickly and figured out also how to sort of get that type of motion into my playing because it's not just playing. It's not just, you know, you want all that, the sound and all that other stuff, but the orchestra really is relying on the Tiffinus. I mean, um, and so I sort of developed a sort of Kind of the way you know when a fiddle player plays, you sort of as a head nod to prepare the the string section. I kind of started doing something slightly similar, not quite, but it's it's just something that you know I happened upon, and it really works great. I mean, I do it, and the whole orchestra like latches onto me, um, and it's it's uh, um, so you know your role as a tippinist is, is you know there's a lot of you know, things that you have to sort of consider and you can't really get that until you've been in the job for a while um, and, and figure that part out. So, um, so you know, I picked up a lot of little things from Vic um, along the way and, and uh, you know, he was, I can't say enough good things about him. He was, he was you know, I, I miss him terribly and, and uh, it was, I always look forward to, you know, uh, working with him. And uh, he only listened to me once, you know, uh, and it was when I was preparing for his job. <laughs> he actually asked, he said, hey, why don't you just play some of this stuff for me? Um, and so that was like 
I was 10 years into the job and I think that was the first lesson I ever took with him. And it wasn't really a lesson. He just, you know, I played some stuff and then he played some stuff and I sort of, you know, looked at it and said, you know, what are you doing there? And what, what struck me about that um, when we did that was we played Mozart 39 or I played Mozart 39 and then he played it and we were playing on his drums and uh, you know, I went through it and it was, you know, like, oh, let me just play it for you. And he, he played it and he was playing really far into the head towards the center. I mean, not ridiculous, but it was a lot more than I would have did. And I was standing over him and, you know, I was standing right at the drums and he did it. And it sounded great, but it's, uh, to me, it sounded a little fuddy because he was so far, you know, close to the center. I was like, Nick, why are you playing so close to the center? He's like, back up 30 feet. And I did, and he played it, and it sounded completely different. And he did the exact same beating spot. And I was like, wow. And then he played it towards the edge, and I was like, yeah, that sounds uh, kind of unfocused as far as the tack goes. Um, so, you know, uh, it's just these little things that happened along the way when we, when we were uh, working together. And mainly it was just me just observing. I was just trying to pick up as much as I could from the guy. You know, I knew he wasn't going to be around forever. And, uh, but he was a pleasure to, to work with. And uh, you know, I, I do miss him quite a bit. Well, I love that you mentioned about the role that the timpanist plays in the orchestra and the concertmaster watching him. And, you know, I think sometimes we might not realize that, especially as students, that that, you know, really matters. And I think um, those are the skills we get from a lot of chamber music and percussion ensemble. And then you realize in a professional orchestra, like, absolutely, you're communicating across the orchestra and across the section that way. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's it's um, something that, you know, you that's it's the hardest thing to sort of teach students of, you know, that part of the job. I mean, they're, they're so, you know, worried about and concentrating on all the other things that like intonation, just like the fundamental stuff. Um, but that stuff, you really can't get it until you've entered the job and been on the job for a while. And then you also have to know the people you're playing. Like, you know, I know certain people are gonna play a certain way and I know they need a certain amount of cue that might be different from somebody else. So, um, and just, you know, the fact that, you know, the hall resonates a certain way. I know certain notes resonate better than other notes and all halls do that. I mean, whether you realize it or not, but um, like at Tanglewood, I know A flats really get out to the back of the hall a little bit quicker than G's, <laughs> which is, so, you know, you. I don't necessarily take that too much into account when I'm playing, but I kind of do a little bit. Um, you know, it's in my in my head, and that was part of that experimentation. You know, trying to you know what I what I was hearing when I was out there, um, listening or, or whatever it is. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of different footholds that you need to put put yourself into when you're when you're in a job like this, and you know you always want to keep getting better. You want to make your orchestra better, and you want to give the players, the players should, that you are playing with, hopefully they're thinking, this guy is so easy to play with. That's what you want. You want, you want them to think that about you. If they're kind of looking back and going like, oh, I don't know about that, um, then you know, you better either fix it or, you know, uh, well, you better fix it <laughs> or, or else you're in trouble. <laughs> so anyway.
it's it's so refreshing to hear all the all the good stories about Vic Firth because there are so many people that when we get people that are very talented or that are excellent businessmen, they're not always the nicest people. And I've only heard the nicest things about Vic Firth. I know uh, Lee Howard Stevens, actually, I guess probably in the early 80s, uh, Vic Firth uh, created a line of Lee Howard Stevens marimba sticks. And Lee eventually said, you know, I think I want to kind of go my own way and make my own business. And he said Vic was the nicest person about being supportive, helping Lee set up his own business, which would obviously go on to compete with his own business. Um, and I've just only heard the nicest things about him. So that's that's very refreshing. Um, yeah, Vic, Vic really made it, you know, I mean, he did the same thing to me when, you know, because I have a line with him as well. And, um, you know, when I... Before I was even the principal, he said, why don't you make a set of Tiffany mallets? We'll market it. We'll have mine and we'll have yours. And I was like, oh, okay. So that's when the persimmon sticks came out and all that stuff. And um, even when I started my own business, Vic uh, was still there helping. Like they were making the cores, some of the wood cores for me because um, I was, you know, I didn't have time to, to lay them. I didn't have machine lathes or computer lathes like he did. He could bounce doing much quicker than me so you know he was you know helpful in that and he has all he had this sort of treasure trove of sticks that he tried that no one has ever seen they're like flannel sticks and like you know they're nothing that i've ever seen before and so he's he's sort of been around the block enough to know like all the little pitfalls he's like you know if you try this it's probably not going to work too well or you're going to spend too much time with it and he's like you don't want to you know you don't want to be straightening your own bamboo. You got to have someone, you know, in China doing that because, you know, you'll kill yourself. And he was right because I tried doing it, and it's he's right. There's no way you can do it yourself. <laughs> it's just yeah. every there's no machines that can straighten bamboo for you. You have to do it by hand because every single piece is different. So you know it's, it's impossible to do because you don't shave bamboo. You have to actually straighten it and then rub off the nodes and all that other stuff. And so. Um, so he kind of set me on the path that way but yeah totally supportive wasn't afraid of the competition um, they offered to market my sticks for me but it was not going to work out price wise so he said you do it for a while then like maybe later we'll do it. So, so JG actually I, I, offered to you know to, to do my sticks as well but I sort of didn't want to do that either <laughs> And also, I mean, just the volume that Vic Firth worked in. I mean, there's a, there was a picture that went around when he passed away of him just looking at like a tr gigantic tree trunk. And it was like, this is the wood for, you know, one day of the world's drumsticks or something like that. I mean, just yeah, yeah, that's yeah, unbelievable. They do 90,000 90, sticks a day. Unreal. Wow. It's, it's unbelievable. If you've seen, if you go to the factory, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's so that amazing. means there's, that means there's probably at least 90,000 drummers out there. <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> well, half that. I mean, they come in pairs. So. Oh, you're right. Okay. <laughs> That's a, yeah. Thanks, Ben. That's a relief. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Scared me for a minute. Next, uh, next BSO audition is going to have ninety thousand people show up. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> we had some some uh, news that I wanted to discuss today. Um, less good news, sadly. Uh, but Tim shared an article on Facebook that I read, and I wanted to invite him onto the podcast to, to help us discuss it. Uh, so this was a March 15th article from the New York Times. The title of the article is, The Met Opera's Musicians, Unpaid Since April, Are Struggling. And so a little bit of background about the Metropolitan Opera. They shut their doors on March 12th, 2020, 
and furloughed most of their workers, including those in the orchestra and chorus, obviously because of the COVID pandemic. In the fall, it made the offer to its musicians that it, was, it would resume partial payments in exchange for long-term cuts, and the u- unions resisted these. And then a uh, quote from the article, it says, by the end of the year, the Met Orchestra was the only major ensemble without a deal to receive pandemic pay, according to the International Conference of Symphony and Opera Musicians. The article goes on to tell stories of several metropolitan musicians. Uh, about 40% of them have left the New York area, some of which have moved in with family members. About 10% have retired, including the assistant principal double bass who retired early. One cellist had to sell sell his precious 19th century Russian bow uh, to make ends meet. And uh, all the meanwhile, the Metropolitan Opera was putting on MetStar's live in concert pay-per-view recitals, which did not feature orchestra members. Most of them featured piano accompaniment with opera stars. The orchestra staged some of its own, uh, excuse me, the orchestra musicians, I should say, staged some of their own virtual concerts, clarifying that those were not affiliated with the Metropolitan Opera. And on April 30th, the Dallas Symphony Orchestra uh, invited 50 Metropolitan Opera musicians to perform with 50 DSO musicians in a performance. Uh, I might have just said this of Mahler's first symphony. I didn't say that. Uh, this uh, benefited the Met Orchestra Musicians Fund and Dallas-Fort Worth Musicians COVID-19 Relief Fund. Uh, it was a hugely well-received concert, and there's actually a full recording of it online. They had to sort of build the stage out to leave room for for distancing between players and so on, but they managed to do it for a uh, a lessened audience in the Meyerson Symphony Center. Um, On May 16th, there were the first two in-person performances featuring members of the orchestra chorus and its music director, along with four soloists. They presented a 45-minute program to an audience of 150 at the Knockdown Center, uh, notably not the Lincoln Center. The program attempted to reflect recent hardships and offer comfort and hope. It included three black soloists and an aria from Terrence Blanchard's Fire Shut Up In My Bones, which is planned to open next season in September. It's the first work by a black composer ever presented by the Met. Also included on that program were the Lacrimosa from Mozart's Requiem, Ave Maria from Verdi's Otello, and others. Uh, Like I said, their official reopening is planned for September. They reached a deal with the union representing the chorus, uh, according to a May 11th article, but there was a May 17th article that said the orchestra musician is still ongoing in their talks. So, uh, Tim, like I said, you were the one that shared this article. Could you tell us uh, your thoughts about this, especially as a professional working orchestra musician? Yeah, well, it's a, a really sad story, to be honest. I mean, it's I think it's just unconscionable um, how the Met handled this. And I know a lot of the musicians in the orchestra. And um, I mean, before any of this happened, you know, I would get stories about, you know, the amount of waste that, 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 that you know, that the Met does, uh, what they spend their money on. And I mean, the orchestra is their most valuable commodity. I don't think, I don't know of any other orchestra too many other orchestras, especially in that upper echelon, that just cut off their their you know lifeblood like that without you know they could have they could have definitely supported the musicians, but they just didn't want it. Their the attitude I know is we'll just replace you if you know you guys leave or if you know it's it's, it's okay. There's plenty of musicians out there and. 
that's that's just ridiculous. I mean, the way Boston handled the whole thing was, um, you know, we didn't even dip into our endowment. Uh, you know, they buckled down. They said, listen, we're struggling. Let's compromise. Let's work together. Um, and they gave us a really fair deal to keep us alive during all this. Um, and, uh, you know, the people who are making the money or raising the money went out and raised, you know, 30, 40 million dollars during this pandemic um, to keep things rolling. And, you know, I think I don't think Dallas even took a pay cut. Um, you know, to, and funny enough, the uh, executive director of Dallas was the head of marketing in Boston. Um, just recently, she took that job about a year ago. Um, but you know, to cut off the musicians completely, um, it's BS. It's 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 they they didn't need to do it. The money is there. They just didn't want to spend it. They just think, well, let's we want to spend it on something else. You know, we're gonna like these recitals or whatever. You know, we're gonna on production or whatever it is. You know, I'm certainly not on the inside of the Met, but it's you know that's a huge corporation. Um, they've got millions of millions of dollars coming in uh, with donors. Uh, you know, it's got a huge history, and they just did it because well, we can spend our money somewhere else that's that's what it has to be they just don't want to spend it on the musicians or the chorus or you know the people who are you know needing it so you know what are these musicians going to do you know they have to sell yeah, their it, uh, yeah well apparently yes <laughs> and yeah. i mean beyond that beyond that it was like not only i should mention not only the orchestra musicians but also the chorus the stagehands, which it sounds like at a certain point, the stagehands were locked out of the building, uh, as well as the, I don't know the technical term, but the, the set builders, they were outsourcing their set building. Uh, like there was a company in Wales that was doing some of it. It's, yeah, it's just absolute madness beyond just the musicians, the entire, everyone that artistically works for them to, to see it being handled that way. Yeah, and you know, it, it, it just doesn't, um, it doesn't register to, people that are making this decision that ultimately they're just killing their product because the morale is it's 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 morale is something very powerful in an organization like a symphony or an opera orchestra or whatever uh, any kind of arts organization and if you don't feel like you're being treated fairly it does something to you know hopefully as a as a professional musician you're always going to play with most integrity that you can but when you know someone basically says you know you're not worth it you know that you can't get your mind past that you know and different people can different people can't but it's going to affect you and in the end it's going to affect the total product and to be not taken care of in that level of musicianship i mean those those players are unbelievably great um, and it's just unconscionable to me. Uh, it's, it's really sad. And, you know, it's, it's, I almost want to say, you know, ban the Met. Don't, don't even bother. But, you know, you can't say that. It's, it's, because uh, I love, I, I love the organization, you know, as, as a musical organization, but, you know, I just, not a fan of Peter Gelb. So, 
<laughs> it does make you wonder though like so so what do we need to do i mean given that yeah like the the supply of musicians out there is more than the demand out there um you say the same thing about university professors it's like oh then people are they're moving a lot of hours to adjuncts and they're getting rid of so many universities are getting rid of faculty lines any chance they get to save money and because they know they can be replaced and they know they'll find someone else who will do it for less so on and so forth I mean, we know that conversation but uh you know we had jason haheim on uh before all this happened and it was it was great to visit with him all those years ago and then he and i shared uh, ted Atkins percussion seminar um so we're both teaching at that and then yeah hearing him after i mean it's just amazing like how he's still in good spirits and like still moving on and finding other things to do and staying busy and keeping his artistry just going. I mean, it's just really, really commendable and admirable. And I guess what I, what I would ask you, Tim is, you know, so given they don't care um, or they're just, you know, uh, what, what do we do to make them, you know, hurt, you know, like it's, I, I think something like the Met, like, you know, they're thinking like, well, we survived all the bad press from James Levine for a hundred years. <laughs> you know, right. we can probably survive this bad press. It's like, what kind of bad press do we have to <laughs> like, like they, they're probably just immune to bad press, you know? Well, they, like, yeah, I think you're right. And the sad truth of it is, is that there's really, we are replaceable. That's the, that's the sad truth. Right. That's so I sort of keep that in my mind when I'm thinking, you know, I'm going in for a raise and if they don't give it to me, I'm doing this. And it's like, no, right. I'm not going to do that because I am replaceable. And, and, you know, with all corporations are going to, are, are going to do whatever they can to bottom line their profits. And some have different sort of ideologies about, you know, what's important. Are the dollars more important than, the humanitarian effort or, you know, taking care of their employees and creating a family. They all have different um, uh, sort of mindsets with that. But I don't know, in my experience, it usually comes down to the money, <laughs> unfortunately, which is, well, that's, which is sad. Well, that's why I think, yeah, wouldn't enough bad press make them start to think about it as a money issue? It's like, okay, great. So if you all are evil bastards and you don't care about people, cool, what do you care about? Oh, you care about money. So can we attack you and the, you know, somehow make enough bad press and make a big enough stink about it that you'll start to feel it as a dollar problem. And I guess what I'm saying is like, geez, I don't know. They didn't care about <laughs> James Levine and all that. Like, could you get more bad press than that? Probably not. You know, it's like, man, what can we, what can we possibly do? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's really you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, you know? And I mean, the only thing that's going to probably affect or make change is if they lose sales, if people stop going. Um, and then know, that affects it, the musicians. So you've kind of. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I, you know, in the end, I don't think it's worth it to do as a musician. For me, I only speaking for myself, is to get wrapped up with it. I think at the end of the day, doing what I do and doing it the best of my ability. And because I know when I'm on stage and I'm playing something, I forget about all of my troubles. So I try to remember that. And 
whether or not I'm being paid fairly or whether or not, you know, I'm being screwed here, you know, everyone's going to sort of feel that in their life at some point or another, that they could do better, whatever, or someone's taking advantage of them. You know, you try your best to sort of plead your case and, you know, hopefully at times in your life, you'll get a fair shake. And, but if you are playing to the best of your ability and doing the best job that you can, and being the best person to your colleagues and being respectful. And I, I think at the end, that's gonna, for me, you know, that's gonna make me happier. I don't know what, in answer to your question, Casey, I don't know what's gonna create change, something like that. Cause like you said, you know, Levine was, had his issues and they sort of looked the other way. And, you know, we had him for a while and we all knew what was going on basically with him, but, you know, and then until, until something happened where lawsuits were being thrown, that's the only time that, you know, corporations say, okay, now we'll jump on the bandwagon and say, we're against this completely. Um, you know, so because the Met knew uh, what was going on oh, yeah. with, with all of that. And it was, it, it was funny because <laughs> um, James uh, Levine hired me. Um, he was the music director when I had to take the audition for Vic's job. Huh. And, wow. and, you know, to be honest, he never did anything that I saw that was. Um, sure, of course. Yeah. Out of line for me. Yeah. But I was worried one, one time because uh, he sort of liked to keep you on the string. He didn't want to give you tenure right away. He kind of wanted to keep you going so he could kind of control you, mold you into his kind of player. And I knew this about him because I, I got warned by by everyone who had who had went through this process. And I was like, okay. So sure enough, my first tenure meeting, you know, my probation meeting came. He's like, well, let's just take a little bit more time. And I was like, oh God, here we go. And so did and I, you know, I just said, I'm just gonna play, you know, the way I think I should play and you know, give him what he wants and blah, blah, blah. But at one point it was actually on my birthday. Um, I got a call from my management saying, Levine wants you to come down to New York. And I'm like, why? Uh, he's like, well, he just wants to talk to you. Because um, he was back, he was doing the Met and Boston at the time. And so I was like, oh, great. And he's like, he wants you to go tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, okay. Which was my birthday. <laughs> so he wants you to wear this. <laughs> well, I was thinking, what is going to happen at this meeting? And so I, I went down there and it was snowing like hell and uh i waited i got to the met and you know his assistant said well just wait in the hallway and i waited for an hour and a half or something and i finally went in there and he had like two red velvet chairs and he said, he said sit anywhere you want and i went to sit down in one of the chairs he said, oh no don't sit there sit in the other one <laughs> so i sat and i was like this is gonna be weird <laughs> and so and, and what's funny about that meeting was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say on this podcast what was going through my head, but, you know, uh, I was thinking, whoa, I don't know. Um, and, but at the end of the day, after the meeting was over, I don't know what was, I can't remember a single thing that was said in that meeting. I, I honestly can't. It was just a bunch of like blabber about, well, we do this or we'll do a plate or mouse and it was just him talking. He loved to talk. And I was just listening and nodding and saying, okay, right, let's do that. And 
it was the, the biggest waste of time that you know that I could imagine because I can't remember a thing that happened with it. But I was like, I was kind of relieved after the meeting was over. He was like, well, you know, walking out of here, I'm fine. <laughs> and then he tenured me about a week later. So, <laughs> wow. Whatever was said in that meeting worked, which I don't know what was said. So there you go. The, I wonder, like, like the the takeaway from all this to me, like, it's like, you know, okay, this horrible thing's happening in the Met right now, and of course, to a lot of symphony orchestras, and I mean, a lot of just musical institutions with COVID, and people don't know how to handle the lack of, of being able to perform, and other places are taking it as a, a a way to change their funding and and do all these things, but. Um, I guess like the big takeaway, it's like, okay, well, you know, to young people out there, like looking for jobs and hoping to get jobs, whether it's orchestra or anywhere else, it's just like, I, I guess, try not to put yourself in the situation where once you get the job, if you lose it, you'll be screwed, you know, try not to make it so like, wow, okay, I got finally got this job and I really, really need it. You know, I mean, it's like, we, we want the jobs so much and they're so competitive and they're so tough to get that we're willing to go into crazy debt to get them and we're willing to do so much, but like, you know, Hey, you, you once you get it, you, you, it could go away, you know, keep in mind, it could go away, you know, be careful the the situation you put yourself in once you, uh, once you get it, you know, that's like the, maybe the only thing you can control. Yeah. I mean, I've seen tenured musicians. What, I mean, technically when you're tenured, you don't lose your job, but I've seen tenured musicians lose their job, get fired um, because of, the way they were and the way they played or whatever so you really no one is you're never you're you know a colleague of mine said you know every one of us is replaceable and like yeah you're kind of right everyone is i think you know the better takeaway of this is if you love doing what you're doing if you love playing music and the type of music you're playing and the instrument that you're playing it really shouldn't matter all those things shouldn't matter at the end of the day. Because I remember when I was a student, I was like, man, I will take a job. I don't even care what it pays. In fact, you know, I was taking jobs where they didn't pay anything. And I remember having colleagues at school say, oh yeah, there's this gig down in uh, Greenwich Village, but you know, it only pays $25. And I was like, really? I'll take it. That's great. It's that like, me you, should, you should not care if it pays a dime you know, at that rate, because if you're in it for the money, you really can't be, you know, it, it's not the profession that we're in. We don't do this for the money. It's nice to make money. It's nice to be successful. Yes. And, you know, it's nice to be able to provide for your family. But if you work really hard and you keep trying to up the ante, you'll make ways to make things work um, and still be in the profession. That's that's what I believe. I mean, that's what I have tried to do, and I have thankfully been successful at it. Um, and but I know people who aren't as successful, but they love what they do, and they do it, and they do it really well, and they're still very happy people. So, you know, it's uh, if you don't absolutely love what you're doing, then it's probably not gonna work out too well. <laughs> it's too it's too tough of a business to not love it that's why you know the the advice that everybody gives and i think we all received at one point was if you can imagine yourself doing anything else just go and do it if it'll make you exactly. happy you know exactly that's exactly it uh, i remember sitting in davie symphony hall in san francisco before i went to college and 
just like sitting in the hall alone. I've been practicing alone. Um, just looking up at the ceilings, like I can't imagine doing anything else in this career. So I remember that was the time that I decided this, I'm gonna do this and that's all I'm gonna do. And so I just put all my eggs in one basket and I was like, you know, this better work because that's all I'm gonna do <laughs> at this point. So anyway, that, that was me. But you know, Tony Cerrone told me that as well. He's like, if you, if you don't absolutely love this, don't do it because it's too hard. Yeah. Right. And I think that's the, that's the way of any career. I think you know if you're really successful in it, it's you probably love what you do. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, to have a career that that keeps you engaged and it's a you know constructive, positive career, I think it's it's hard no matter what. But you know, so much of this story with the Met is just really disheartening to to think like these musicians have reached what a lot of people would consider one of the best jobs in like you're at the peak like this should be an amazing experience and then all of a sudden the rug was pulled out from under them and i'm wondering has it changed your perspective at all on preparing students for orchestral careers knowing that you can work so hard and do everything exactly right and, and be very lucky and get a top job and then you know, the bottom can fall out. Yeah, you know, I, well, that and COVID have, you know, um, I mean, the, obviously COVID is the reason for a lot of this, um, but the response because of COVID um, has, you know, definitely made me think um, about how I handle my students. And, you know, before any of this happened, I generally would, you know, make sure that I, I try to be as honest with my students but not break their spirit because you know it's you want them because one I never know you never know if they're really going to make it or not so I can't say listen you got no prayer buddy it ain't gonna happen for you I can't say that to someone because I might be full of it um you know I might not know and this person could surprise me but you know there are some truths to our field and in, in that, you know, you're not going to be you're not going to be a millionaire, uh, most likely, um, in this job. Um, you are replaceable. You, you know, if you're not willing to to work, you know, and and keep striving to get better, you're probably going to have problems later down the line. So, you know, I kind of can sense with some students, you know, where they are commitment wise. And so I'm being a little bit more like fielding questions from them saying, are you willing to do this? Are you willing to do this? Are you willing to do that? And most of them tell me what I want to hear, to be honest. But at the end, if I probe and I keep probing, usually the truth comes out. So I'm trying to really sort of get people to sort of understand what it is that you need to do for this career and that it's and open their eyes to you know really what it actually takes because i think a majority of students have no idea really of, of what it really takes um you know i've had some students come through and play and they played for me i'm thinking oh man there's so many issues here that we have to back up on and Sometimes I ask, like, how do you think you did? I was like, 
you know, I think this is one of the best times I've ever played. And I was like, you know, okay. So what do I do with that? How do I, I don't want to knock this person down. I want to give him a reality check or her a reality check while still having hope out there. So, you know, I, I think as, as educators, we have to be really careful about, you know, not alluding to um, what this field, what it really takes to be in this field, uh, you, know, you know, sort of beating around the bush with it, but, uh, and also being able to inspire at the same time. Um, hopefully these students come to their own conclusions about it, um, you know, about where they, what's realistic, what's possible, and do I really want this kind of work? Because, you know, when I was in school, there were a lot of 14-hour practice days, a lot. I mean, it was up at 4 a.m., it was in bed by 11.30 p.m., and it was every waking moment of practice that I could get. And that went on for a few years. And I don't see too many students doing that. Like I'll roam the halls every once in a while at BU and there's nobody there. And I was like, what is going on here? Why is there anybody practicing? Um, I think at one point in your life, you can't have a life other than music. You have to spend every waking minute making and figuring out how to be a great musician and it, it, it's, it's not going to happen overnight it takes a few years at least to get that under your belt and so i i figure you know do it when you can do it if you have a family it's going to be next to impossible to do that but i mean not not that it is impossible it can be done but you know i did it when i was in college i was unattached i had no life i had you know i had I knew people, but I wasn't like social. <laughs> I just didn't have the time for it. And that's just me. Um, that's how I, how I handled things. Um, and fortunately, I don't have to do that now. I mean, you know, it's all ingrained and I can do my own kind of practice that's, you know, on the job type practice. But, you know, you got to spend those hours. And uh, unfortunately, I think, you know, we're in the day of immediate gratification. This is the age where, where kids can go and get anything that they want because of the technology that's out there very quickly. Like when I needed to study a particular symphony, I had to go to the library, get the record, put it, have a turntable to play it on, play it, find it with the needle, you know, all this stuff. Or when I prepared for the Met audition, like when I was, whenever, however old I was, I had to find all those spots in the opera. So those records were like four records long. It took me like days to figure that kind of stuff out. But now you can just pop it up, you know, you can type it in your computer, find it within 10 seconds. And I think kids are used to that. They're, a lot of uh, students or amateurs don't realize that there's no shortcut you have to spend the time. They, you're not going to get that immediate gratification and it's not going to happen overnight. So I, I see a difference between the student that was around 30 years ago and the student that's now. And I even see it in my kids, you know. And so we keep trying to warn them about, you know, there are no shortcuts here. You have to spend the time and uh, you might be able to get information quickly, but 
it's not going to happen for you unless you put in the effort and be ready for it to take years. Because um, I, I find that kids give up quicker than, you know, uh, than in my days of growing up. They, they give, it's like, well, oh, this isn't working. I've spent two weeks at it. Uh, I'm going to move on to something else. So it's like, okay. <laughs> so anyway, it's a different life, you know, or different times. Yeah, when you're used to finding it so fast, yeah, you just, you get trained, I guess, to, uh, well, rather than sticking with this and figuring out, I can qu qu more quickly find something else that'll do the same thing or, or give me what I'm looking for in less time if I just abandon what I'm currently looking at and, and go to the next thing. It's interesting. Well, hey, thanks to Ed Choi for um, the question. We had that Facebook question about auditions, but I think Tim Tim covered his experience right next to Vic Firth um, uh, quite a lot. But thanks a lot for the, the question, Ed. Um, yeah, I, th I think we got uh, around a lot of that pretty well. So, um, yep, thanks again. And let's see, you know, I, I just thought we'd, you know, end with something a little, I don't know, just this lighter because um, Ben had to do his top dark thing. <laughs> Blame Ben for it. Just leave it alone. Good job. Yeah, couldn't leave it alone. Yeah, come on, come on, Ben. You've got a job. Just be happy. Why can't you be happy, Ben? Um, <laughs> but I just, I just always like asking, um, especially orchestra musicians, like, what's, what's your favorite rep to play? And, and especially as a timpanist, can you include um, what you think about solo timpani rep or concerto rep? Because that's always a fun, ongoing conversation, you know, the solo solo timpani pieces and and such yeah um well you know it's funny because um if you asked me what my favorite rep was um like 20 years ago 25 years ago i could probably spit out you know i definitely like to do this this and this but nowadays um i find it's whatever's in front of me to be honest i, I you know i love to play bach on timpani or Mozart, it, it, it's just, because it's always something like that you have to figure out and make your own and try to understand the history behind it. What were timpani like back in those days? Do, do we want to replicate it or do we want to, you know, bring it to a modern era at this point? And so it, it's kind of um, whatever I happen to be doing at the time. Um, so it's a crappy answer, but it's um, the I idea behind it is, uh, you know, every time you do something, it's different. Like, I, you know, we play Beethoven 9 every year. Um, at, it's the last Tinkerbell concert. I mean, we obviously didn't do it last year. But, you know, so I've done it a lot. And every time I do it, there's a little something different that I notice or that I didn't take into account or I do differently or the orchestra is doing differently and it changes my perspective. And, you know, I can play it from memory at this point, but I, but I still find that, you know, it's like, oh, I never noticed that little nuance that was happening over in the, you know, in the oboes stuff. And, uh, you know, that kind of affects how I'm gonna play this over here. And so uh, it's, it's, it's really whatever happens to be happening. Fortunately, you know, it's uh, in the orchestra, um, there's a Boston Symphony chamber players, and that often ends up being, you know, a lot of non-timpani stuff. So I kind of get to dip my finger and, you know, believe it or not, I can play mallets every once in a while and, um, you know, other things. 
So it kind of keeps my chops going a little bit in, in those areas. And it's a lot of fun because it's very different. Unfortunately, the thing that ends up being played in that group mostly is Lasquare. I mean, not unfortunately, but so it's, it's I, I kind of like to branch out into you know other things like you know Dupu with some stuff that's really interesting for for chamber for settings uh, in, in that regard. Um, so anyway, it's 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 kind of whatever I've been doing. That's the answer to the question. What was the second part of the question? I was wondering, you know, maybe just like once and for all, you could make you could finally decree that like solo timpani is ah. drag. You know, like maybe can we stop with that? <laughs> If, if you didn't like the answer to the first part of the question, you're really not going to like the answer to this oh, part. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, have a, I have an interesting story about this. Um, I, I am not a huge fan of solo timpani repertoire. Um, and, and believe me, it's, I'm sure it's great. And it doesn't mean that, you know, I, I uh, am decrying it in any way. But um, my belief with timpani is that it is, it is not a solo instrument because it's just it's it, it doesn't lend itself to have that solo quality. Yeah, you can play solos on it, but it's uh, something that I don't really I can't I can't dive into it fully believing. And the thing that did it for me was um, well, not the thing, but one of the things is uh, <laughs> this is really bad to say on a show like this, but. Um, when I was at PAS, I was presenting something at PAS uh, at the convention. And, you know, they, they have this thing, uh, PAS is usually Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but Wednesday they usually have, they had um, sort of a symposium of just one sort of um, topic. And the symposium was solo timpani. So they had over 30 or 40 different solo pieces being played on Wednesday from like 7 a.m. to midnight. And I went to every I went to everyone that I could go to. I went to all of them. And I came out of it going, oh my God, I didn't play any one of those things. I just can't see myself playing that stuff. Um, and uh, I think it's just an instrument that works so much better in the role that it's supposed to be in the orchestra. Um, and it's any other instrument can do it, but but I mean, not, that's not to say Tiffany can't do it. It can do it. I just I just don't believe that it's it's uh, something that I can put both feet into when I do it. So um, so I'm waiting. You know, I'm I'm hoping that there's stuff written, and that doesn't mean I haven't played solos. I've played them, you know, quite a few, and I try to make them as lyrical as I can, or I'm trying to make them make sense musically. Um, and they're needed out there. But like when we do auditions for BU or for, uh, you know, Tanglewood, often, you know, we, we skip right over the solo timpani stuff. I'd rather hear a solo marimba piece, solo snare drum piece. Um, all I need to do is hear maybe one excerpt on timpani, and I know that if the person can play timpani and can understand the instrument. You know, usually Beethoven 9 can sort of answer any question about if the person knows how to treat the, the timpani as an, you know, as an instrument. Um, so 
um, unfortunately, it's 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 a <laughs> it's a terrible answer. <laughs> well, that's great. It's 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 what. <laughs> but we it's hear the honest about. truth. It's yeah. just how I feel. So yeah, I've been asked like Paul Yanchis is, is asking dozens of times like, "Hey, we got this thing uh, by Phil Glass. It's two timpani. Why don't you come over and play it with me?" And I'm like, "Nah." <laughs> I'm <Yeah>. okay. <laughs> I guess I was going to follow up with, "What about any concerti?" But I guess that answers my question. <laughs> I was asked to play. Um, actually, Levine called me in and, and said, "Listen, I want Carter to write uh, Elliot because Levine loved Carter. We did we, we did every single Carter piece that he wrote. It was, it was numbing how much Carter we did." And he said, "I'm, I'm going to have him write you a Tiffany concerto," and I was like, "You know what?" No, don't. Wow. <laughs> uh -huh. I, I, I would, the only composer that I would have considered having a concerto written was Dutier, uh, Henri Dutier, the French composer who died, I don't know, about 10 years ago, I guess. But he was doing a lot with the DSO when I first got into the orchestra. He really knew how to write for timpani. Um, all his, is like his symphonies and, you know, any, like all the little stuff that he wrote, Shadows of Time, you know, all the, that kind of stuff. He really knew the instrument and he really knew how to, you know, make the harmony almost be more melodic in a timpani sense, but made it work better than anybody that I could see. So um, I would have did that. <laughs> so that's the best you're going to get. <laughs> cool. That's great. Well, Tim, thank you so much for your generous time today. It's been such a pleasure to get to talk to you and we will see everyone on the next episode, number 289. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure being with you guys. Thanks, Tim. Okay. Bye. Now. Bye. Everyone. Bye.